To love learning. To laugh. To love. To be loved. To see beauty. To understand. To bring grace. To the things that matter most. This is Psychology America with Dr. Alexandra. Welcome to my show. For every life stage, we have questions. Let's enhance our lives together as we explore the things that matter most. For the couples listening today, remember from the podcast episode on the honeymoon phase of love when we talked about how in order to keep those honeymoon feelings going beyond the first six months of your relationship, you need to actively do new and interesting things together. I'm about to suggest an opportunity for those who are local to Sparta, New Jersey. This episode is dedicated to the MS Fundraiser, July 2nd, 2019, at Farmstead Golf and Country Club in Lafayette, New Jersey. This dinner and dancing event features Val and Jenna from ABC TV's Dancing with the Stars. Money raised from tickets and donations will help support those with multiple sclerosis, MS, in this region of the United States. If you're interested, go to this email address, msfunfunraiser, R-A-I-S-E-R, 2019 at gmail.com for tickets. This podcast has listeners from all over the world. One thing that I know parents from all over the world can agree on is that we want our children to be okay. Most parents, if they could, would rather take on suffering themselves than let their children go through pain. I know that's how I feel about my four children. But that's not the way life goes. We can't control everything, and life will happen to our children. So the next best thing is this, to know that they would be okay and bounce back once the bad things happen, which inevitably bad things will happen in life. Bouncing back. That's a piece of resilience. Heidi Keller, PhD, is here to talk about resilience, how we can have more of it, how we could teach our children to have more of it. Heidi, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you so much, Alexandra. I'm really glad to be here. How did you first get interested in resilience? Well, um, even before I started graduate school, um, we had a foster daughter. She was 18 years old. She came to our home, um, my husband and I, and we had two young children. And she had come from an abusive home and seemed to be actually doing pretty well. She really stuck up for herself. She was really great with kids. We liked her a lot. Uh, she came at one point, came and asked if we needed a nanny. And we weren't quite ready for one, but we asked why. And she said, because I need a place to live. She needed to get away from this family. So she came and lived with us. And then maybe a year or two later, her sister came and lived with us also. And so they were both exposed to sort of a loving family from us after being away from their abusive family. But the two of them turned out quite differently. And I just wondered what made it so that the first 
she was actually a little bit older. So the older girl, how did she become more able to tolerate emotions? You know, what was the difference between the two of them, given that they grew up in similar circumstances? And so I started looking into why that was. Hmm. Victor Frankel was one of the first to write about this topic of resilience. Right. He didn't really uh, call it that at the time, but Victor Frankel, a lot of your listeners will have heard of him. He was a Holocaust survivor and also a survivor of a concentration camp. He was an Austrian neurologist and psychiatrist, and he wrote a book called Man's Search for Meaning, which described his experiences and what he believed to be really three main ways of finding meaning in life, no matter how brutal the conditions can be. Um, so his three things were creating some sort of work or doing a deed. The second thing was an encounter with another human being, finding love. And he talked about that in the circumstances of being in a concentration camp, which it seems would be very difficult to do. Talked because about a lot of the, finding love. But at least connecting with connecting. other people. And unfortunately, he would connect with a person and then they would die and he'd have to find another person. And then the th third thing is the attitude that uh, we all take toward unavoidable suffering. So that, of course, sounds very familiar and ultimately became really the most important part of learning how to become more resilient, um, this attitude that we take. So the concept has really been described over the years as a bunch of different things, invulnerability, mm -hmm. hardiness, coping, and then eventually as resilience. And Victor Frankel didn't really call it resilience. Is there one agreed upon definition today on, on what resilience is? Well, yes and no. The general um, definition of it is really getting through some sort of difficulty and being okay and possibly even stronger because of it. You know, it's the idea, like you said, of bouncing back from some sort of a difficult situation. Mm -hmm. Now, there's a little bit of a controversy right now. Well, not right now. It's been for a while. It's between people who believe that the survivor has to have experienced severe circumstances or some sort of trauma. Mm -hmm. um, and then there are a lot of people who've sort of watered it down. So the precipitating event that demonstrated how someone or a group has bounced back really came away from the definition. So essentially removing trauma from the equation, um, which is really where 50 years of research was based on um, things like trauma and stuff like that. So you're saying there's a group of people that are saying you cannot include trauma when you're looking at resilience definition. No, not that. It's that, um, I'll give you an example. Things that you hear on the news all the time. You hear the word resilience all the time about a bunch of different things. So right. here's one example. Describing a sports team who overcame defeat by winning. You know, and they say they they were resilient because they, um, you know, they lost a few games and then all of a sudden they won and that makes so them resilient. So that's not enough. Well, a lot of people don't think that's enough. A lot of people think that if you're going to talk about the word resilient, you need to keep it within some sort of really, you know, overcoming some really significant mm -hmm. issues. Right. So it's sort of, be, the term has become a little bit trite in those instances. Yes. And I'm in the group that believes that someone should have had some sort of extremely difficult circumstances or trauma in order to 
consider themselves really mm-hmm. resilient. Hmm. I I have a dear patient of mine whose mother abandoned him and his four siblings when he was 12. And he went through school feeling like he he was different. He felt like he had to keep this a secret that mom wasn't home. There wasn't a mom at home. But for the most part, he did okay. He did well in school. He didn't seem to be depressed. And he had friends. And it wasn't until he was 21 that it hit him. And he went into a deep and suicidal depression, mm-hmm. which is how he landed in my office. Mm-hmm. Now, I have a connection to this story and some research I recently learned, and I want to just bounce it off of you. Great. Um, so this spring, I went to a conference, the Anxiety and Depression Association of America, mm-hmm. and I learned something fascinating from a Harvard researcher. Her name is Susan Anderson. Mm-hmm. And what she shared in her presentation is that there tends to be a 9.2 year delay between the onset of trauma or abuse and the onset of depression or anxiety. So you have 9.2 years without any symptoms and then it comes. And this happens to two-thirds of people who have had trauma. And with this particular patient, it was nine years later that it came out for himself. Do you know whether that was because there was a long time where talking about it wasn't acceptable? I would say in this case, he didn't, he didn't have a safe place in the, in the world to talk to about this. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. Yeah, and so... That article, I'm wondering about that article, if they addressed that issue, why, where the nine years, what happened during those nine years, what Mm -hmm. was happening? Were they just not talking about it? Were they denying it? um... Well, this was a study, um, you know, it was referring to more than one person. Sure. I think what some of the other presentations address is how do you prevent trauma from leading to depression and anxiety. And so there were some interesting things I learned about that. Okay. Well, one thing is that kids who've had trauma are different in a couple of ways. I can give you three ways that they're different. Okay. One way is that they have more trouble discriminating between what's a threat and what's safe. So they're more likely to read negativity into a situation that's really okay, nothing to worry about, but they lose energy assuming negativity. Mm -hmm. So in the case that I'm sharing, once he became depressed, he started to assume that he was unlikable in most social situations, like at work, even when there wasn't any evidence of this. Mm -hmm. All right, so a second thing is, People who've been exposed to trauma, they have more trouble regulating their emotions. Right. And they seem more reactive. So after they get upset about what a a friend or a parent did or said, they'll get more upset than most. And then they'll take, it'll take them longer to calm down. Mm -hmm. And then a third thing is that 
what I already mentioned, that people who've experienced trauma are more likely to experience anxiety or depression later. Sure. That makes sense. And as we get closer to the end where we start talking about um, ways to help our children build resilience, those three factors will come into play. Oh, okay. Yes. Something that's kind of interesting, when you had asked me about um, how I got into the subject of resilience, I actually started out looking at self-esteem because, you know, when I was writing my, I had to choose a topic for my dissertation in graduate school. And so I started looking at the, um, a bunch of stuff about self-esteem because there was that big movement for a while. It was probably about 20 years worth Mm -hmm. and, and self-esteem sort of got beaten to death much in the way (laughs) resilience is starting to. But one of the things that they found is that that movement basically backfired a little bit creating a need to teach our children something else. So for yes. example, yes. Yeah, That's so- <laughs> right. I, I think you're talking about how, at least in my generation, a lot of the parents complimented children in the wrong way. Right. Exactly it. I was just going to give that example even. Okay. Um, so, so for example, a girl doesn't do well in a sporting event, mm-hmm. you know, she, whatever she's playing, soccer or whatever. And so the well-meaning parent says, oh, you did fine. Don't worry about it. You know, the important thing is that you really tried. And then the girl knows she didn't do well. So that comment just falls flat. You know, she's, mm. she doesn't believe it really. And so then doesn't really internalize it. Um, or if she does internalize it and says, oh, you know, it's okay to not do well because I, as long as I feel good about myself. So something that now we find works better would be to say something like, because that doesn't really give her what she needs to do better the next time. You know, she just feels better no. about, she feels good about herself, but she's not going to necessarily do any better at the sport. Um, so why don't we look at ways that, so the parent could say, well, why don't we look at some ways that you can improve so you can practice more in that area? What, what did mm-hmm. you feel you didn't do well? And then let's practice that, the parent can say, you know. So that, and this is part of learning a sport. Um, but you know, we love you no matter what. So you could still have the accepting parent um, that's saying, okay, well, you didn't like the way you played. So let's talk about why that is and how you can do better the next time instead of just, you know, bolstering her self-esteem. Yes. that This is reminding me of Carol Dweck's work on fixed versus growth mentality. Mm-hmm. And that we, in addition should not compliment children on being a great athlete or saying you're so smart mm-hmm. because that promotes a fixed mentality rather than the idea of working hard to achieve your goals. Right. And that ties into the whole self-esteem thing too. Mm-hmm. Um, and it makes it even worse if we're complimenting their appearance or something and it's not actually necessarily true to the outside world. Hmm. Right. So it's better in general to promote um, trying harder, trying different ways, or working harder in terms of, I guess, academic resilience. Right. Versus saying you're so smart. Right. I have an example of that. My own son um, decided that he wanted to play the piano um, when he was in kindergarten and got one of those little Fisher-Price 
things that looked like a baby grand piano. Mm -hmm. And it had some, um, so it was just this little keyboard and it had a bunch of pre-recorded things on them. And um, one of the things it had on there was a very shortened version of Fear Elise, which, um, which is a classical piece. And he played it a few times to himself and then just played it. In, I mean, he listened to it a few times and then just played it. And he said, Mom, I really want to learn how to play the piano. So he did start taking some piano lessons, but he he mostly needed to just listen to something and then just play it. He had a very good ear. And people kept telling him how great he was at it. And um, and he kind of was, you know, I mean, it was, it was amazing that here's this kindergartner mm -hmm. and he was picking out these classical pieces and being able to do that. And so everybody kept saying, oh, play that again, play that again. And so he just ended up playing the same things over and over again and didn't, and didn't want to disappoint people by mm. actually learning how to play the piano, learning how to read music and how to really become good at it. And so it sort of ruined it for him in a way because mm. he had this idea, okay, I'm a really great piano player. Well, this is good enough. I, you know, I can just keep playing these things until I'm in high school. And by that time, people are like, okay, well, we've heard that 1,500 times. You know? <laughs> Can't you learn yeah. something out? Oh, and else? that's been validated, that experience by some of Carol Dweck's, some of her studies, um, that students with a fixed mentality will they're more likely to lie about their grades because it's so important for them to maintain that they are smart. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They're, it's harder for them to fail or to show that they're failing because they're afraid of that because the options are black and white. Either you're smart or you're not. Mm -hmm. Rather than you keep on trying, you will fail. And that's, you know, that's a good way to encourage is to say, you know, this is going to be very, this is going to be tough. Mm -hmm. learning this new soccer move or this new math concept. It, it might feel hard, but when once you learn it, you're going to feel great. Right. That's a great way of looking at it. Yes. So you've done some work on resilience in the military. Yes. I, I worked for the uh, VA for a little while, and um, I just sort of came across something on one of the VA sites about resilience. Um, training. Yeah. And so I got pretty interested in that. It turns out it's the same group of people at the University of Pennsylvania who developed the idea of how to become more resilient. They did a lot of research on it. They were experimental psychologists and started out with animal research and stuff like that. And and something called learned helplessness that created a lot of depression in people, you know, just like, what's the point? What's the point in trying? I'm not going to do a good job anyway. You know, that kind of mentality. So basically in the military, they, they started a whole, uh, because so many people were coming back with really severe PTSD, you know, a lot of psychological problems, a lot of suicide. And so the army, and eventually it would, I guess, spread out to the other areas of the military, um, started working with the people at the University of Pennsylvania to develop something called master resilience training. Mm -hmm. And um, they had sort of seven core ideas. The first, like one through five, had to do with preparation, basically to expose them to other ideas before they got exposed to the traumas of combat. So they um, prepared them in ways like uh, the first couple of, it's like a 10-day training. So the first couple mm -hmm. of days are about um, resilience and not only about bouncing back, but actually being able to grow 
and thrive. And then building mental toughness, identifying character strengths is a big part of it, and making it okay to be um, in the army and not have to be tough all the time. Oh. You know, sort of what you were saying about the fixed mentality versus Mm -hmm. growth, that everybody's going to grow, and it's okay for all of you people who are expected to be, you know, really strong and tough without actually having learned it. So they emphasize the need to actually learn it mm-hmm. as opposed to just ex, uh, expecting Or the openness to keep learning or to say, I need to learn. Right. And I don't have to present myself as uh, a soldier who doesn't experience pain, you know, doesn't experience mm-hmm. any kind of uh, um, doubt about him or herself, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And then strengthening relationships is a part is a big part of it too, because and then they bring in uh, families and stuff like that. So, um, so the first f- five steps, so they sort of come to a conclusion about all of that, and then the uh, sixth is sustainment, and the seventh is enhancement of all of these skills. Mm-hmm. So the first five really were are influenced by positive psychology. That's um, the training that the original training that they got were from the group, you know that supports positive psychology. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking about two different things as you're mentioning the military training Mm -hmm. for resilience. And one of them, do you remember that study that found that if you expose toddlers to mild stressors, they are less likely to get depressed and anxious than the toddler who's completely protected from stressors? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and that and that talks to what you're saying at the beginning. How as parents we really want to um, protect our kids from stuff, mm-hmm. but that's not necessarily the best way of parenting. Yeah, you know, to, because then they don't learn. They don't learn how to overcome, or that they that they can overcome, right? Right. And then the other thing I was thinking of from the military concept is that with the children, one of the ways they have found that you can help children to become more resilient is if they have one safe caregiver who teaches them ways of thinking, basically teaches them to not be overly reactive to things so that the parent will interpret the world in a more positive way to help the child to interpret the world in a more positive way. Right. And more positive isn't just sort of the glass half full, glass half empty idea. There's a lot you know, there's a lot more detail to that. Yeah. Um, and again, I'd, I'd like to get into that when we start talking about how to become more resilient or how to raise our children to be more resilient. But that brings up something important because you're talking about a parent being... A uh, caregiver. A, a caregiver or a parent. But mm-hmm. it actually, when they first started like looking into um, how to help people become stronger, it was developmental psychology, you know, looking at children mm-hmm. and how they grew through the ways. And they were really focusing for, turned out, too many years on risk factors and protective factors. Mm -hmm. And should we start to really build on the protective factors, enhance Mm -hmm. protective factors? But it really wasn't an equation. You know, it's not an equation of you have so many risk factors, can you give them more protective factors to balance that out? And it didn't work that way. So, for example, some um, risk factors were like a dysfunctional home environment, Mm -hmm. um, a low socioeconomic status, chronic discrimination, you know, and then also potentially having an abundance of negative life events, deaths Mm -hmm. and stuff like that. And um, 
I mean, a negative life event is being from a dysfunctional Neglect, family. Neglect, anyway. abuse. Right, all of that stuff. Um, and it wasn't always necessarily in the family. The, the family might have been okay, parents not not like knowing what to do to help their kids through things as much, but just sort of being neutral and not being able to help them through things. Mm-hmm. Now, on the other hand, um, one of the biggest protective factors was having at least one strong adult role model, and that could be anybody. It could be their coach. It could be a teacher. Mm-hmm. In the case of our foster daughter, before she came to us, we ended up being, you know, role models. But before she even got to us, uh, she had a home ec teacher who recognized that she was being abused and really sort of took her under her wing. Mm-hmm. And this was before mandatory reporting, but she really just showed her that she could like create anything in the sewing class and, you know, just things like that. So having a, having one role model. There's some other things that were protective factors, like a sense of spirituality, you know, be, mm-hmm. having something that's bigger than yourself and also having more positive life events, but not creating them necessarily. I, in that conference in the spring, I learned about a study by Dennison and colleagues, a 2016 study that found that children that are sensitive to rewards can be buffered against trauma leading to depression. So kids that are able to seek out rewarding situations like sports and music and friends, that is a protective factor to help buffer them mm-hmm. from depression, from trauma. Yeah, that, that's a really good point. It is a protective factor, but it's a little bit more than that because they are internalizing a way of coping, you know, a way of coping with some negative emotions, as long as it's a safe place to do that. Mm -hmm. You know, whatever it is, whether it's sports or music or whatever, as long as it's a a safe way of expressing emotion without being um, ridiculed. Well... I don't know. They may or may not express emotion while they're doing the sport. It's just a positive experience. Yeah, I said that, that a little gives bit wrong, reward. It gives reward. Right, right. I said that a, a little bit wrong. Well, I'm not saying you're wrong. <laughs> it's just a discussion. <laughs> yeah. Um, there's a program out there that is supposed to teach resilience. I don't think they use the word resilience. Mm-hmm. It's by John Weiss of University of Washington. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'd like to hear about it. So it's three things, basically, that they teach children as a prevention, right? Mm -hmm. Cognitive skills so that they can learn how to evaluate and reappraise things that seem negative. Mm -hmm. So just because Susie made a face at you doesn't mean she's mad at you or that the whole group hates you. There are other options, right? And no need to jump to conclusions. That would be one example. A second thing they teach is relaxation training so that children learn not to be too emotionally reactive. And in one of my podcast episodes, I review how people can do square breathing. That one's called facing the unknown. Mm -hmm. And then they also teach what's called behavioral activation. So it's that idea of the child seeking rewarding activities. So joining a club, you know, getting them to seek out clubs and sports and taking a class and joining a group or building friendships. 
so so that they could have the rewarding activities. Mm-hmm. What if the young person is too shy, for example, or a lot of kids who come from dysfunctional homes have a very difficult time in school for a lot of reasons. How could an adult help the person do that if they're sort of naturally shy or scared that it's not going to be a safe thing? Right. That would be, I would think that the school has a great role to play in showing options to children and personally inviting them. Mm -hmm. What do you think? Well, yeah, the school, schools and parents. As parents, we often, sometimes we go overboard (laughs) where Mm -hmm. we'll just expose them to like too many things and then they end up, you know, they end up getting worn out. But if we expose them to enough things and then then they find something that they really like, you know, so they try a couple different things, you know, karate, joining the lacrosse team, and they aren't coordinated enough for that. Um, but then they take up a musical instrument and then all of a sudden they find that is really rewarding. Yeah. Yeah, parents can do that. And the schools. I, I worked, I a, I've a, worked a lot with an immigrant population um, just outside of New York City in a federally qualified health center where I was um, doing some work there once a week. And Mm -hmm. with that population, because they're new to the country, a lot of them don't know about the options. Right. So a lot of those children I found weren't involved in any activities. And they had dealt with trauma of coming into this country, um, a lot lot of difficult circumstances. Mm -hmm. And they didn't have a lot of those rewarding type of activities because they just weren't in the system. Right. Yeah. So the combination of those three sounds like um, at least some people believe that that, that's a good combination. Is that in tune with what you would recommend on teaching children resilience? Well, uh, you know, certainly relaxation training, as long as we start early enough where like if you if you started picking that up in high school, for example, mm-hmm. the kids might be too embarrassed, you know, or they might feel that was too touchy-feely, for example, but it doesn't make it wrong. It doesn't, make, right. doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. Um, but I think the earlier you start, the better it would be. To well, teach them something like square breathing. Yeah. Well, any of these things, the right. earlier you start, the better it is because you start, if, if you start with um, things that are minor to overcome rather mm-hmm. than something really huge as they get, you know, go on in life, it's going to work better because you're building skills upon skills. So I don't think there's a downside to those things. Mm -hmm. Much of what seems to work really has a lot to do with the first thing that you mentioned, which is the cognitive reappraisal. Yeah, cognitive skills. And basically trying to explain difficult times. Let's just, just take difficult times because it's not only about helping them understand difficult times. It's also about helping them understand good things that are happening, mm-hmm. um, cognitive ways. So would this be a good time for me to talk about that sort of general phasing this in for the kids? Because yeah, wh- whatever you would, yeah. Uh, okay, because... Yeah, talk to me. <laughs> this, this ends up being sort of... Yeah, a, there's no... This ends up being kind of my big, the big bang at the end. Sure. And <laughs> if you want it to be now, if the end is now, go for it. It's... <laughs> So, um, so like I said, you know, starting early on where the challenges are much smaller, you know, even something really silly, like running into something, I mean, running along, you trip over something and, and you're a little kid and you start crying, you know, and just being able to say, well, 
okay, you know, pick yourself up. Let's, you know, let's make you feel better. And then try not to run in flip-flops anymore. <laughs> you, know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, things like that. But um, so, but with the cognitive skills, obviously they have to be developed enough to be able to respond to these things. So something like they have some sort of difficulty. It could be a minor or a major one. And explaining to them in terms of sort of evaluating their sort of three steps. Is this something that I have or had any control over? You know, Mm -hmm. Um, is it realistic to think that it's somehow my fault? So this is for a bad event. Mm -hmm. You know, in in training people to, uh, and training all of us and kids in explaining bad and good events in our lives, um, if you want them to become more resilient, if it's a bad event, you want them to understand that it's not necessarily something that they had any control over. Mm -hmm. That's a great first question, and that's the serenity prayer. Exactly. Yes. I'm glad you brought that up because that really is part of it. And then the uh, second part of it is, uh, so basically um, we're talking about external versus an internal explanation of something. So then the second part of it is in a negative situation, if this happens again, could it be different? You know, so I'll give an example of that in just a second. And then the third part is, do I believe that this is going to happen just under these circumstances or is this a one-time occurrence? And so then we're talking about sort of an external view of the event, mm-hmm. unstable and specific. So let, let me give you an example. Which is, which is the way non-depressed people think. Exactly. So your child tells you that other kids make fun of the way she talked after getting braces, mm-hmm. okay? So then you're talking to her about it. Well, is there any way that you have any control over them and their comments? You know, mm-hmm. um, what part of this can you control and can't you? And mm-hmm. the bottom line is you can't control the fact that people are being negative towards you. You know, you can't change them. Mm-hmm. You can't change the fact that they said that. And then it just happened this first day. Is it possible that's not going to keep happening? You know, so you want to sort of, stick to the idea that, okay, well, this happened today and it felt really bad, mm-hmm. but, but it's not It can feel dense. like forever when someone's feeling terrible about that. Yeah. Exactly. So that's a great question. And then thirdly, well, okay, this was about talking differently with braces, not in everything that you do. You know, they aren't mm-hmm. criticizing everything globally that you're doing in life. They're just, they're just making fun of the way you talk hmm. with your braces. So, but not only in difficult times, um, you also want to help them understand when something good happens. So, uh, for example, I end up using her all the time instead of his, but of of course it could be. (laughs) (laughs) We're both women, so we can say her. Um, So there's Kevin here in the studio. (laughs) (laughs) So her presentation, so like she makes a presentation on Mm -hmm. the dangers of smoking, Okay. And it was really well received. You know, her classmates complimented her on it. Her teacher says that that's really good. So she tells you about that. And it, the self-esteem uh, movement would say, way to go, you know, good for you. Punch on the, you know, in the arm. Mm-hmm. Keep up the good work. Well, there's more to it than that. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, yeah, well, you worked really hard on that. You know, I'm really glad that they liked it. So that's sort of like internalizing a good event. Okay. Mm-hmm. And saying that um, then there's the second part of it, which is, you know, if you give this exact same presentation to another group, they're probably also going to like it. 
you know? So it's, it's a stable explanation of um, doing something good. Mm-hmm. And then globally, you did a great job with this topic. If you give a different kind of a presentation or a performance or something else, you'll probably do well if you put the same amount of effort into it. Mm. So can you repeat again the general principles of what you would want to say to a child after a good event? You want them to internally understand that it's because they worked hard on it. Okay. You know, because they put effort into it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that if they're going to do the same type of thing, the same type of presentation or whatever, there's a stable way of having them... It uh, might transfer. Be able to... Well, that's actually the third part, transferring okay. it to other situations. Mm-hmm. There's a very fine line between the second and the third part. The, uh, the second part is if you're going to give the exact same thing, you know, to another group or whatever. So uh, is this situation going to stay stable? Yeah. Will it stay stable in a good event? Um, and then the third thing is, like you said, is it going to transfer mm-hmm. into other things, a performance of, you know, it doesn't even have to be in front of other people. It could just be anything else that they do. Because if they're going to work hard on something, you know, they'll get a good outcome. Um, whereas if we were looking back at a negative thing, you know, where uh, if you're if it's going to transfer to something, it's a bad event and it was going to transfer to something. It's not just about talking differently with braces. Is it going to be everything you do? And so you're mm-hmm. trying to help them understand it's not going to be in every situation. It's just happened to be with the braces. Right. You know, they're not going to necessarily, you know, the next day you go in and they're going to start criticizing your clothing choice. So helping them understand that the way that they think about good and bad events in their lives can really help them grow in those skills Mm -hmm. so that when something um, worse happens, then they're able to really cognitively understand that in that way. Nice. And this can apply to adults, too. Yes, it can. There are uh, places all across the nation that are trying to teach adults these kinds of things. And certainly it works, particularly with people who want it to work, you know, and have the cognitive capacity to be able to do it. If they have a a way of being able to uh, incorporate this type of learning, then they can do it. And that's the whole idea with the military training. Mm -hmm. You know, they're they're training almost these exact concepts in the resilience portion of the training um, so that when they get out into battle, for example, if they're in the infantry or something like that, and they end up killing someone, you know, well, what kind of information did you have at the time? How much of this was in your control? What could you have done differently? You know, then they have this other way of looking at it mm-hmm. that doesn't necessarily blame themselves or they're not necessarily blaming themselves. You have been diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. What has that taught you about resilience? Well, a lot of that ties into the fact that my father had multiple sclerosis. Um, He ended up dying when he was 53 because when he was diagnosed in the 1970s, they didn't even have a way of diagnosing it really, let alone treatment. So they didn't even have any treatment. So kind of seeing how he dealt with that because he became much sicker, much quicker than mm-hmm. I have because n- now we have a multiple sclerosis society that's done all this research. There are a lot of treatments. There's a definitive way of diagnosing it. And so the fact that he was able to deal with that in a way that um, he was able to pass that on to me in, and 
and me wanting to help other people who have multiple sclerosis Mm -hmm. also and understanding that this is something I have no control over. You know, Mm. I, I, uh, I got this diagnosis. There's nothing I can do about that part of it. Is this something that um, affects every area of my life? Mm-hmm. Well, no, not necessarily. You know, I have specific symptoms and sometimes those get worse and then I have to deal with it at the time. Mm-hmm. And then also, um, is it going to be a consistent thing? Is it going to tra- translate to other areas of my life? Or, you know, it's, is it just about having this disease process or is that going to affect something like, am I going to all of a sudden start developing something else just because I developed multiple sclerosis, mm-hmm. which of course isn't the case. You know, I'm not going to necessarily have some other disease just because I have that. Right. Right. That makes sense. <laughs> it, it does. You, you asked yourself those same exact questions. Mm-hmm. And I can see how that would be helpful. Yeah. Yes. Which isn't to say that Every single day is a good day, but, you know, you, you learn to focus. It's like you were saying, find find something rewarding. So yes. right at this moment, my rewarding thing is doing that fundraiser, and it's extremely rewarding. And I'm dedicating it to my father because he really, you know, there was a lot of his life where he, even before he was diagnosed, where he, uh, he and my mother developed those coping skills within us, my brothers and me. Uh, helped a lot. Can you help listeners to understand what the symptoms are of multiple sclerosis? Some people I, don't don't know. I can yeah. help them understand what my symptoms are. Um, a lot of times, people don't understand if someone has a, any disease that isn't as obvious. It's not externally obvious necessarily. If you're if you're using a cane or you're in a wheelchair. Um, it's more obvious. Multiple sclerosis targets the central nervous system. So it's your brain and all your nerves, everything that goes down the spinal column. So it depends on where the breakdown happens, you know, without going into a lot of medical detail. It depends on where in in the central nervous system you're getting these lesions or whatever. Mm -hmm. Mine happened to all be in my brain, um, which is ironic because I, I trained as a psychologist and that was the area that I most needed that not to happen. <laughs> you know, I could be in a wheelchair and still be a psychologist, but I can't have a lot of these problems with things like speaking. Sometimes I slur my words. Yeah. Things like that. Um, processing speed has been a big problem for mm. me. And I have a lot of swallowing difficulties mm. and fatigue is a really big thing for me. Mm. So those are my circumstances. A lot of people have different sorts of things that are, some are obvious and some aren't as obvious. Yes. And it's a lot harder for people to, um, well, let's just give an example. I have to park in a handicapped parking spot sometimes. Sometimes I do and sometimes I don't. It depends on how tired I am. Because one of the things that happens is that I trip. I fall more than the average person. I trip a lot. Hmm. So if I go to the grocery store and I'm going to have to walk around the grocery store a lot, I have to get a cart so that I can hold on to the cart. And I have to park in the handicapped parking because if I have to, walk a big distance, I might trip and fall in the parking lot. Hmm. So somebody might see me parking there and putting my my handicap sticker up and then I walk in and it looks like I'm fine. And they might think, you know, what the heck is she doing? She's taking advantage of her grandmother's uh, handicap parking sticker. <laughs> <laughs> um, so some people that have this types of symptoms that I do um, run into some sorts of biases like that. People yes. feel a lot more sorry for someone in a wheelchair and stuff. 
this podcast episode is dedicated to your fundraiser. Can you tell listeners about it again? Sure. When I started taking dancing lessons, one of the instructors had students in wheelchairs. So it got me thinking about hosting an event that could demonstrate to people with MS who have physical symptoms that they could dance. That thought led me to the idea of a fundraiser to benefit the MS Society. It's a dinner dance. We're having it at the Farmstead Golf and Country Club, which is a beautiful setting in Lafayette, New Jersey. The basic idea is a dinner dance, but we also happen to be very lucky to have stars from ABC's Dancing with the Stars show. Val, a lot of people have heard of Val if they know anything about the show. Um, he's one of the founding dancers. And he just recently married another one of the professional dancers, Jenna. So the two of them are coming and they're going to be doing a couple of performances and you can buy VIP tickets and um, go into another room later on and meet with them and take your, get your pictures taken with them mm -hmm. if you want. But in any case, people will have a dinner dance. We're going to have baskets to raffle. It's on July 2nd from 6 to 10. Um, we have less than a week. The deadline for purchasing tickets is June 29th. So people need to sort of get on the ball and reserve their tickets pretty soon. And there's that website, but it's well, easy. Tell listeners what that is. Well, the the website's too hard to, too oh. hard to remember. So it would be better to email me mm -hmm. at msfunraiser, without the D. So msfunraiser2019 at gmail.com. And okay. then I will answer their questions and Great. give them a link to the website. I think I want to end with sharing what the serenity prayer is to li for listeners. That's a very good idea. And hopefully I, I get this right, but I think it is, God grant me the serenity to accept the things that I can't change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Exactly. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you so much for inviting me. If you enjoyed this episode of Psychology America with Dr. Alexandra, show your support by leaving an awesome rating on iTunes. If you'd like to share your comments or ideas about this podcast, follow us on Facebook under Psychology America. Lastly, Dr. Alexandra has written an inspiring children's book entitled There's Always Hope, a story about overcoming, which is beautifully illustrated by Brianna Giasulo. There's Always Hope, a story about overcoming, teaches children about finding joy and gratitude even when things don't go exactly as planned and can be found at psychologyamerica.com or amazon.com.